Hi everyone, uh, really great to be here. Um, I'm Maria Chrisley and I'm the head of design for Atlassian's UI platform. And as part of the UI platform, one of our flagship products is the Atlassian Design System. And today I'm here speaking with Ava Playstead, who's a senior product designer, and Klaus Piver, who's a senior engineer. And for the next 45 minutes, we'll share how we're approaching how we're going smaller to go bigger. Now we're gonna cover it from lots of different perspectives. So whether you're here as a design manager or as a designer of any discipline, or even as a developer or a business owner of a design system, there will be something here for you. Now for me personally, I've always found it really important to have a deep sense of purpose and meaning in everything that I've done throughout my design career. And so when I joined this role two years ago, that was no different. We started on the path to reimagine the Atlassian design system and enable it to be the cornerstone of crafting quality user interfaces at scale, where every single designer and developer reaches their potential in not only what they ship, but how they ship it to our customers. And Cornerstone was important to us. And Cornerstone was important to us because it's the first masonry stone that is laid in a foundation in which all other stones are set in reference to. So back in 2021, Atlassian as a company experienced tremendous hypergrowth, and we found ourselves needing to support over 18 products. We had over 4,000 designers and front-end developers, and over 30,000 app vendors all delivering customer value to our millions of customers worldwide. And so regardless of your size, all of us here have experienced varying degrees of hypergrowth and the demands that this would place on your design system. Now with this sudden scale, we were caught in the middle of a wicked intersection where we had to support the past, which had an incredibly high maintenance burden. We had to support the present where this hypergrowth was driving high demand and we suddenly found ourselves not being modern by our customer standards. We did not have table stake solutions like universal dark mode. We were not world-class by industry standards because we were missing key foundations, infra and tooling. And we were not useful to our makers and makers are those designers and developers who were creating their own custom components or making their own best guesses. And this friction was actually creating a loss of trust with our stakeholders. Now, when you're in this much pain on the inside, if you can scroll notes up, please. When you're in this much pain on the inside, it's really difficult to stay strong on the outside. There's absolutely no opportunities to focus on your future. And so our strategy around going smaller to go bigger is about unleashing the potential for high quality design decisions to be made with confidence and speed. And this is an enabler for designer and developer productivity. And it is about unlocking the dependency on the Atlassian design system to have an answer for every single type of design composition imaginable, which is not sustainable at our scale. And so we want to share with you today three key areas in which we've gone smaller to go bigger. And so the first one starts with you as a team and how you're setting yourself up for success. And the second one focuses on your ability to deliver composability, to be effective to your maker, who I mentioned were those designers and developers. 
And thirdly, how the first two then gives you the capacity and the space to work on your design system's future so that you can empower for the long term. All right, let's talk about team. When a design system tries to please everyone, it actually pleases no one. And our secret team mascot during this really pressing time became Psyduck, true story, <laughs> who actually looks exactly how we were all feeling. And so we learned pretty quickly that we needed to be intentional about our experience strategy and then what would unlock the biggest value first. Design systems need to be treated like evergreen products. And then that product is delivering a service in order to create value. And we weren't in a position to do this effectively as we were suffering under the weight of expectations, a lack of clarity in our boundaries, and there were far too many cooks in the kitchen for us to make effective decisions. Our team health and morale were suffering. As design systems are for people, the people you should invest in first is that of your own team. And you need to create the right environment for your team to harness this equation and realize that value. And I know how incredibly obvious that sounds, but without naming any names, how many times in the physical or digital world have we seen these types of examples? Where the carpeting department is clearly not speaking to the building department, and this has actually created a major usability fail. Or where even in the year 2023, we still continue to see the latest parking ticket machines look like this. And I don't have any words to describe why that is the case. <laughs> and so all of this is referred to Conway's law, where an organization's output is directly related to how it communicates internally. And we heard some of that yesterday. And so in other words, how we organize our teams affects how we perform our work. And we actually use this to our advantage in our design system. We actually co-designed our org structure with our team to bring them on a journey and make them feel a part of this transformation. You can see here how Jack's, Jack is highlighting how empowering this was making him feel. So not only did this serve as a way to further embed our understanding of our direction, but it actually enabled team members to think about how they saw themselves in it. Here, Ali is asking a great question about product partnerships. So a sense of belonging, purpose and clarity on our team's goals is something that we track at Atlassian through team health surveys. And so it was incredibly important to me and other leaders that we not only applied human-centered design to our work, but that we applied it to ourselves. So how did we go smaller? Having started out as one team, we shifted to a missions-based model of four smaller sub-teams. Two of those teams focused on our UI foundations like color, spacing, and grid. And then there was another team dedicated to accessibility and another to the maker experience. So remember that I said that design systems are actually a product that delivers a service. Well, this service design and end-to-end -end journey approach is how this final team looks at the world. We also identified the capabilities that needed to be shared across all of these smaller teams and we tightened our leadership structure with a balance of managers and craft leads. Now Conway's law positions that smaller teams are actually more cohesive and produce better results more quickly. And by having each of our four smaller sub-teams focus on these meaningful missions, they were empowered, they had higher autonomy, and our delivery cadence significantly increased, therefore making our team 
more productive. And so as a takeaway from this, you should acknowledge that you are actually guaranteed to ship your org structure. And so you should embrace that and identify the design system strategy that you want to support and then match that to a missions-based team structure. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Maria. So now that we've looked at our team structure and how it allows us to work faster and more productively, let's take a step closer and talk about what we're doing in our day-to-day -to, -day to enable us to scale our system quickly with the demands of our products through the lens of composability. Now, as Maria showed, our team is comprised of four sub-teams, two of which are dedicated to building out our UI foundations. Klaus and I sit about here. We've spent one and a half years building out a new spacing system. The work we've done is a good example of how we're going smaller to go bigger. I'll start with looking at the work our UI teams is doing more holistically, and then Klaus and I are going to talk about how we're approaching it through the work we're doing in spacing. Now, as a design system team, when we build anything for such a large group of products, be it a foundational element like spacing or a component like a card, it needs to be flexible, scalable, and maintainable. In terms of flexibility, it needs to work for a variety of different experiences, from Confluence to Jira to Trello and beyond. If you look at Confluence, which is a, it's used for knowledge sharing, it needs to be friendly, open, easily legible. It requires a very different experience to Jira, which is used for data tracking and needs to pack a lot of information densely into a small space. So we need to be able to design for a wide variety of different situations. Our solutions need to be scalable. If and when we add more products or experiences, the system needs to be set up so that it can accommodate these as seamlessly as possible. And finally, our design system team needs to be able to support our makers in a timely and efficient way. We need to ensure that the systems we set up help us help our makers move quickly. And just to clarify, when I say makers, I'm talking about the designers and engineers who are using our design system to build our Atlassian products every day. So let's take that card component I mentioned earlier as an example. Now, this is actually one of our more frequently requested components that we don't have yet in our library. So with over 18 plus products, we have a lot of different cards to support. These are just a few. There's a great variety between these cards, which represent both the needs of different products, but also the needs within products between different experiences. So how do we create a card component that fits all of our various product needs and allows our makers to stay within the system? Because after all, if they don't stay connected to the system, it's not really a system. So we have a few options. We can create a super card component that does absolutely everything and, and anything. Now, I'm not sure this would even be possible, but anyone who's built components in a design tool knows that eventually this breaks down and it's not really scalable it would surely become bloated and the continuous additions and amendments would not be maintainable by our team. We could create and maintain all of the card components. Now, if you only have a few cards, this should work fine. But when you're supporting so many products with so many variations, this option falls apart quickly because our team is left to maintain all the different versions, updates, edits, new variations, new cards. So what we gain arguably, maybe, in scalability, we lose in maintainability and almost surely in speed. So what do we do? Well, our third option, and this is where composability comes in, is to break our card component down into a smaller system of UI elements that allows for diverse composition. This option allows not only for flexibility, scalability, and maintainability, 
but it puts the power back into the hands of our makers. We democratize the system, and our makers are empowered to build quickly and efficiently, and we're no longer the bottleneck. It allows our makers to reach their diverse needs without having to stray from our system. So now, if we look at this card in terms of its foundational items, and you can see them here on the right, um, you can see we've got elevation, we've got image, we've got spacing. So we can change the values and swap some options, like our heading, for instance, to a smaller one here, like this. And now we can create a different card, so this card. So as you can see, it gives our makers more flexibility in composition, but it keeps them within our system and using a consistent design language. So how are we doing that? Well, we've built out a system of UI elements using des our, with design tokens and what we're calling primitives. Now, many of you may be familiar with design tokens as they're becoming more and more industry standard, but just to quickly recap, tokens are how we store the smallest repeatable design decisions, like space, color, and corner radius, to allow for a consistent look and feel. The second piece of the system is primitives. Now, these are our newest addition. Primitives are the scaffolding around the token. So if the tokens are the what, what color, what spacing, what corner radius, primitives are the when and how of when to use them. They're more situational. They simplify decision making and they improve developer ergonomics as well as design consistency. Now, these are early days for us on this journey, but we've just released our first layout primitives to open beta. So putting it all together, here we have the main UI foundations that we're building out through tokens and primitives in order to scale and modernize our system. Some of you may have heard previous talks about our work on color and our journey to dark mode, which is where it all began. And now we're working on building out the rest of our foundations, including spacing, typography, iconography, etc. Some of these foundations will only be tokenized, and some will have accompanying primitives, if applicable. And just to recap why all of this is necessary, we've really come to a size where a classic engagement model with our products was starting to break down, as seen by the example with the card. We needed a new way to be able to flex, scale, and support our many products, as well as to be able to easily modernize the look and feel. This model empowers both our makers and our team to move forward in harmony. And I want to take a stop, a stop for a moment here and talk about how guidance is really key. So when you're working with a system, you really want the system to work for you. As you grow bigger, this becomes more and more imperative. Guidance is a main factor to make that happen. The easier and more effortless a system is, the easier it is to adopt. You want to have answers available such that your makers don't even get to the point of asking questions. So tokens and primitives, due to their nature, embed an inherent level of guidance into your system from the get-go. So don't allow guidance to be an afterthought. Put it front and center. So now that we've talked a bit about how we're approaching our mission of going smaller to go bigger more holistically, Klaus and I are going to take you through our approach for spacing. But in order to do that, I need to give you some context. So I'm going to start from the beginning. When Klaus, the team, and I started our spacing journey, there was nothing but this little guy, a concept of a multiple of eight pixels and an equivalent grid size variable in code. The problems that we faced were many. We had loose, inconsistent guidelines that told makers to use multiples of eight, or sometimes four, and it caused a lot of confusion. We had a grid size variable in code that was used unbelievably creatively to get any value that anyone desired that was not necessarily a multiple of eight or four. Our grids were outdated and hard to find. The grids that were available were based off of a navigation that was no longer used by our products. 
layouts were inconsistent within our suite of products. It could be quite jarring for a user because the layouts could shift quite drastically between pages and products. One leader even called it a layout crisis. And finally, we weren't set up for responsive design, as in we had none. We didn't have a system for our makers to be able to easily create responsive experiences within their products. So we started at the very beginning by building out a scale which was informed by research across our suite of products. And we spent a lot of time on this piece to make sure that we were solidifying the foundation on which everything else was going to be built. From there, we built a set of base spacing tokens to represent our scale and code. On top of that, we built a set of layout primitives, and I'll go into that in a bit more detail in a second. But this is where composability really comes into play. And finally, we built a grid for a larger page composition. And with all these items, we were now able to control layout from the smallest elements to the largest page experience. And we'd also now created a set of tools that our makers could use to compose their various UIs and create more consistent and coherent layouts. And on top of this, we unlocked the ability to start creating responsive experiences and density theming for our customers, which was really crucial. So let's look at some of our first primitives to date. Here we have some layout primitives. They're box, stack, and inline, which are, I've already said, spacing layout primitives. <laughs> um, you can think of them as spacing components, really. So a box is a container that has a defined padding. Stack and inline are containers that define the spacing between items in them. Stack is determining them vertically, and inline is determining them horizontally. Now, if this sounds familiar, it might be because this is how auto layout works in Figma for anyone who's using it. So now I'm going to show you how we use primitives by building out a layout. I'm going to use yet another card. Um, you'll be able to see how, how they work, but also better understand the power behind them. So let's build this card. So we've got three elements here, an avatar, a heading, and a description. And we want to put them in a container. So we're going to put them into a, a box primitive, which is going to give it the padding. So you can see here that our box primitive is utilizing our space token of 300, which is the equivalent of 24 pixels. OK, now we're going to add some space between our avatar and the text elements. So we're going to do that using an inline primitive that controls the space between objects horizontally. There we go. And finally, we want to add just a little space between the heading and the descriptive text. So here, we'd use a stack primitive to add the vertical space between those items in the container, like that. So now our card is complete. So what we've created here is a card for larger experiences, such as desktop screens. But now we can look at how we use the primitives to manipulate our card for different layout requirements. Our original card has a box value of 300 and an inline of 200. But we can shift these to smaller values, as shown on the right, to allow for a more compact size card, better for smaller screens like mobile devices. Now we can take it a step further. We can place the card into a layout and start to use primitives to control the larger page experience. We use a stack here between the sections of the page, as well as, remember, all those um, primitives that we put into the card, so they're in there too. So now with all of these elements in place, we now have the ability to control our spacing vertically. Here you can see the stack primitives in the layout have been reduced, and we've shifted to those smaller cards that we created that are more well-suited to smaller devices and experiences. So this now allows us to start unlocking density theming. And we also have the ability to start controlling our spacing horizontally, too, which unlocks responsive layouts. 
So now primitives have enabled us to control the spacing of our page in both directions, horizontally and vertically. So that, in a nutshell, is conceptually how primitives work. And finally, I want to talk about parity. We strive for parity in the design system team between design and code, which is key for a healthy system. But sometimes parity is not one for one. A good example of this is our layout primitives. When we first started creating box, stack, and inline, we experimented with creating layout components in Figma that would mirror the primitives as they were in code. But what we discovered is that our designers didn't want an extra level of implementation if they didn't need it. If, if auto layout could do it, that was good enough. So as we strive to meet our maker, and in this case, our designer, where they are, we ended up surfacing our layout primitives only in code. And to talk more about that, I'm going to pass it now to Klaus to give you a more in-depth look. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Klaus. I'm a senior engineer on the design system team at Atlassian. And as Eva mentioned, I'm here to talk about code. And I'll make it interesting and rewarding by the end of it, I promise. <laughs> so let's start by thinking about UX in the context of the web. UX is what the users really experience when they are interfacing with your product, with your platform. In this case, it's the vision set by design and then materialized by code. So with that said, let's increase our focus on what happens in code so we can see how everything is put together. You saw this card component in Ava's slides before, and we saw, and we saw how it's built from a design perspective. Now, let's have a look at how it actually is built in code, so we can have the full appreciation. This is the fully coded version of what that card component looks like in real life. Doesn't look too complex, does it? If you can get past the angle brackets, almost reads like plain English. But to better understand the parts, let me do a quick breakdown so I can highlight the important bits for you. First, uh, we have the surrounding container, which is the box element that I have represented there. Here it works as the wrapper for that card component. And in this example, it's handling the internal spacing, the padding value for that particular card. Box, as a concept, could handle other things like background, border, elevation, all those very boxy concerns. But of course, I only shown here padding for simplicity. Next, we dive deeper into a more layout-specific concern, which is the inline. We want to put the avatar to the left and the two pieces of the text to the right. That is being wrapped as an inline component, as you can see here. And then we just have to specify how much spacing we want between the two parts to achieve this layout. And next, and finally, we have that stack, which is to handle the small vertical layout between the two pieces of text. Stack already does the vertical uh, alignment, as we expect. We again just need to specify how much space we want between the elements. And that sets up the full layout structure for this card component, easy like that. So if you look at the full code again, you can clearly see how everything that we have coded here is for a purpose, is explicitly declared and intentionally coded this way. There is a very clear separation between what is context, what is content, and what dictates how the UI should look like. 
that's great and all. But if you think about layout primitives, there could be more things. So why do we stop there in the first place? Let's go one step further and look into older UI foundations. Do you see those two pieces of text represented on the card there? In code, they are represented by the title and description components highlighted here. I've written them as title and description to abstract away the complexity that they have to absorb internally. For example, should they be links in certain situations and just plain text in others? Should they be in line editable for certain users or not? All those types of things. But what really matters for this particular topic is that in their simplest forms, for presentation purposes, they are just another type of primitives, which are what we call in our system typographic primitives. They complement layout primitives. Typograph primitives have very specific concerns as to how text should appear on a given screen. What combinations are possible for the best user experience, contrast validation for accessibility against a neighboring box, etc., etc. So they really complement and work well with each other. Okay, so maybe up to this point you could say, well, code is not necessarily my cup of tea, so all you said sounds Greek. But you really want to know why these primitives are so helpful. So here are the key benefits for everyone's benefit. First one, better designing and developer experience translates into better user experience overall. So the increasing the productivity happens because designers and engineers compose their UIs in the same way. Next, we have a pervasive information architecture being used throughout. So it's a shared language between designer and engineer. There is better handover, which I'll cover more very shortly. And last but not least, for sure, less time spent handling boilerplate or scaffolding means more time shipping features, which is incredibly powerful. And of course, I also understand you guys probably like to see some numbers based on observations so far. So what we have discovered at this stage is that these increases in efficiency can help save six plus hours of design time per week per designer when there is a lot of conversation happening during handover. Which leads me to my next topic. As you probably know, handover, just to be clear, is that step between what a designer has created and what the engineer is going to codify for the end user. How do we do it? That's a great question, I'm glad you asked it. <laughs> In a single sentence, what we do is, we bring the tools close together to create a lovely synergy between the crafts. I know, that's a bit theoretical. I'll make it more concrete. So, in Pratt, that's an expansion of Ava's slide from before, what you see here is where most of the magic happens from a handover standpoint. When you go in Figma and lay out things, especially if you're using auto layouts, there is a work that we did to approximate and create an equivalent representation of that for code. So in this example, virtually all combinations of what you can do with auto layout map to one of the primitives in our system, box, stack, and inline. Let me show you some specific examples to cover layout, but just to draw a comparison for typography that we also mentioned, you can use the same approach, but at this more using tokens directly, design tokens directly. So, here we have a designer that's specifying that a particular frame that they have selected is, uh, should have a vertical layout configuration. 
That means it maps very naturally and perfectly to the stack representation that we have in code. So you can just use a component like that. One more example for good measure. This one is a bit more combined. We have a horizontal layout in this type of situation, but they also indicate that content should wrap, so you can see the purple square there. This becomes an inline component in our system with the should wrap prop set against on that, so you achieve that visual, so it really matches what Figma has. That's great, but naturally, some of you could be thinking with your keyway hats here and say, hmm, there are only so many combinations of layout or things like this that we can express with a high-level primitive in code and their props. That's fair. For more bespoke experiences, we still want makers to maximize their creativity while still adhering to the system in place. Remember what Ava mentioned, we want to keep everyone still in the system. Our solution for these types of use cases is called XCSS. To better understand XCSS, Think about vanilla CSS first. Even if you're not overly familiar with CSS, all it does, it handles all your styling needs, but with all that power, even if you have the support from preprocessors or variables, there is little guidance that you receive as an engineer in context. So CSS is often enough the Wild West for what the website looks like. XCSS, on the other hand, is explicitly opinionated. We offer our makers the power of custom styles within the guardrails of our system. So we get the best of both worlds, linking back to that guidance piece Ava spoke about just before. To cover all the characteristics about XCSS, I'll need 15 minutes of your time, which clearly I don't have, but here's a 30 second to the point showcase instead. So, when an engineer is specifying values in code, such as dimensions, colors, all those things, they use token names. And these token names match one-to-one -one what appears in Figma in perfect parity. There is no confusion, no guesswork. Similarly, when someone is doing a responsive work, there is no guesswork around breakpoints. And engineers don't need to craft media queries on their own or just get things repeated or sometimes accidentally wrong. We use the same terminology for responsive as present in design files. Again, no confusion. Excellent. Now let me take a second here because some of you could be thinking at this stage that you heard me saying the word Figma and parity in every single slide. So you could be thinking with yourself, aren't you guys you know, like too close to what Figma is doing? Isn't that a case of vendor locking, aren't you worried? Another great question. And <laughs> it's a good question because you never know. Figma could be acquired by a big company. Change, <laughs> change its direction, who knows? <laughs> you have to be prepared. But as just to say that what we have based our solution on is a stable and well-tested set of open standards. It's literally the web platform. So behind the scenes, what you really see in using Figma in the same way that our primitives in code is an implementation of Flexbox being used throughout. We know this is a solid web standard. It's not going away anytime soon. And even if we decide to change our tools, for example, Figma for something else, we can just realign on the terminology and we still maintain the same foundations throughout. Okay, with all the under the hood now covered, 
Let's talk about the project itself, just to give everyone kind of like you know, a bit of a higher level overview and everything that we have employed to support things. So I'm going to highlight three key principles that our work has followed throughout and that we understand that have helped us reach our goals. The three key principles are cohesion, composition, and confidence. So let's just start with cohesion. Cohesion. We want our suite of Atlassian products to maintain their familiarity at the same time that each experience is unique and distinctive on its own. Designers and engineers, our makers, know they can use solid and cohesive building blocks to create all types of user experiences. Composition. Interesting question. Have you guys wondered why Lego pieces are so small? Not just because they are dangerous for kids, but <laughs> because smaller pieces mean higher fidelity. So no matter what you build, you can always identify what the general purpose for that construction is, and you can always identify that they are Lego pieces. We have designed our set of primitives to be small, but representative enough. So they can be composed virtually infinitely, where each usage is declarative and intentionally expressive. And finally, confidence. When code is written in a declarative and expressive manner, reads like poetry like I showed before, <laughs> code transforming tools such as, such as code mods can modify existing usages and evolve the system as a whole, handling tech debt. We can bring everything forward if needed be. So if we ever need to realign on terminology, remember Figma could be acquired. We are just a code mod away from fixing things because we are confident we can target the right code and identify the appropriate usages. Okay, so now with all that nicely covered, I'm happy to hand over to Maria to talk about the future of our system. Thank you, thanks class. So now that we had our team going smaller and we figured out how to do composability to go smaller and we had those in place, this then gave us the capacity as a team to work on our design system's future. With our design system being 10 years old, we asked ourselves, what do the next 10 years hold and what might our design system need to support in the year 2033? And one of our strategic guiding principles of the future is this to make experience quality the pit of success. So imagine the effort of climbing a mountain and now compare that to the effort of sliding down a hill and into a pit. That is a lot easier and exactly how we want our designers and developers to feel when they're using our design system. The right thing to do should happen by default and this is where tooling, automation and engineering linting come in but when this isn't possible, the right thing to do should be far easier than the wrong thing. So in essence, we're making it easier to use our design system than not use it. As Jenny Yip, who is our principal design architect, who takes a lot of inspiration from the global design systems community, she reminds us that we're actually shifting our culture through systems thinking. And this starts by laying the foundations at enterprise scale to rebuild and reimagine our design system from the ground up. This starts to democratize our design system and multiply our impact and the potential of every team that uses it. And all of this is really nicely summed up in our vision of the future.
The language we all speak is Atlassian design. It's woven into all of our experiences and has changed as much as Atlassian itself. Like any language, it adapts. And the next evolution is here. After 10 years in the making, we're reimagining Atlassian design system. We're constellating the elements of our language to evolve with us, making Atlassian design system the cornerstone of crafting quality interfaces that are unmistakably Atlassian. Constellating starts by establishing a stronger foundation. Every design decision is now expressed with design tokens and modular building blocks that are easier to use and configure, empowering developers and designers to create seamless, beautiful experiences better and faster. Every part of the system works together harmoniously by supporting accessibility, performance, and consistency from the ground up. All designers and developers have the power to co-create inclusive, accessible, and on-brand experiences that meet our world-class standards. Atlassian Design System is built to be empowering for everyone who relies on it. We're giving you the tools and freedom you need to create and manage your own local systems. Building your experiences with the design system as the base ensures that we continuously evolve and scale our design language efficiently and harmoniously. Because ultimately, Atlassian Design System is what we create together as a community. As our system of systems multiplies, so does the potential of every team. We all can't wait to see what you make next. And the impact of this recently saw us deliver a universal dark-themed solution across the company and into products like Jira, Trello and, Com and Confluence. And this is actually underpinned by our color system, which contains over 300 design tokens, all powered by the Atlassian design system. We've now rolled out primitives across the company to see us power designer and developer productivity. So we have every confidence that we're going down the right path, which is definitely not easy and has its challenges every single day. And we've also anchored our future strategy in these three systemic shifts that will see us into the next 10 years. So the first one is foundational. As you saw Ava and Klaus present, we're going smaller to go bigger and strengthening our UI foundations to modernize our system. Harmonious, we're meeting the maker, those designers and developers where they are to build trust and improve the end-to-end -end service experience of our design system. And finally, empowering, where we scale our system into a platform that powers other local systems as we make it more flexible and extensible to build from. To see more of the work that we have presented, please visit us at atlassian.design and we can't wait to see what you do next inside of each of your design systems. A huge thank you to our 50 plus strong team and our design leadership for helping to evolve with us over the last two years. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> we have some time for questions. Um, before we go to Elle and everybody, uh, I, I have one from uh, that came in via the uh, virtual channel, which is, are you accepting... Um, suggestions or ideas from the community? And if so, what kind of governance process do you have in place? 
that is actually one of the, um, oh, if I can get mic'd. Uh, that is actually one of the hottest topics going around. I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, what I might add to that is I think contribution of 10 years ago is not the same as what contribution should look like moving forwards. Mm -hmm. And because we are working on our UI foundations and those primitives as we shared today, we're enabling designers and developers to make the right choices for the right context of that product experience. So we are no longer the uh, design uh, governing authority or the police, and we're actually empowering and making those other design leaders more accountable for the decisions that they make within their products. So we're actually in the middle of uh, revamping our uh, design system engagement model. And one of those aspects of that engagement model is contribution. Um, we pilot and partner with a lot of our stakeholders because we want to do things in practice and we want to learn from actually shipping something in the real world, even if that's a pilot to a small subset, moving from alpha to beta to general availability. So that is something that is ongoing and it is something that you need in order to test and learn. I'm sure. Thank you. Elle? Hi, I'm Elle. Fantastic presentation. Thank you so much. Looks really slick. Um, yesterday, we also had a really great presentation from uh, a team who've been redesigning a kind of calendar for, you know, um, swimming or Zumba for elderly people in New Zealand. It was, I don't know whether you caught it, but it was a great, um, they had designed this amazing app and then they realized when they piloted it that they were getting really negative feedback because the content wasn't right. And as a content strategist, I was like, yeah, correct. So I'm really interested is in whether you can tell me a bit about how content fits into your design system. I know it's there. Give me the spiel. Go ahead. Um, we actually have an amazing uh, content lead as a part of the design system and, and several content designers because as you saw in our vision video, uh, content tokens are actually a really important part in making sure that we've got consistency in the labeling and terminology that we use across the board. And so a UI content system uh, is necessary and uh, thinking about the content strategy and how we execute uh, our content across Atlassian is something that is very much at the forefront. I'll also add to that. Um, we're trying more and more to be content first with what we do. So we're, <laughs> thank you, thank you. So we're trying to make sure that we are, we are working on that guidance piece alongside with what we're doing. Um, which is an interesting place because it sort of marks you have to be more opinionated in the beginning, so which is really successful. I mean, uh, it's an interesting technique because it means that we have something to work against pretty much from the get-go, and that's a really nice way to start. So we're sort of doing those at the same time. Question over there. Kevin? It was actually Elle's question. I was going to ask you on her behalf, but she got there first. No. Um, the only other thing I was going to say was that, like, having worked with Atlassian and knowing Atlassian people, I just wondered uh, in the mix how involved, you know, the technical writers were when you started to look at this system from the get-go. Like, could you talk about that journey? Like, you know, was there a discussion around, oh, look, you know, in the future, we're going to try and make our content more condensed or we're going to try and make it less complicated or we're going to not use, you know, our tech talk, so to speak. Hmm. Does that come into play at all? Um, yeah, I think it's a similar answer to what uh, Ava touched on was that uh, we look at content from the beginning and we've got a, um, a number of uh, developer, con you know, we've got a developer content designer as well as content designers because we need to make sure that the content is uh, what we call pervasive IA. 
so that we have the same labeling and terminology that's used in Figma, that's used on our website, that's used in product, that's also seen in code and also seen in our technical documentation as well. And all of that has to be consistent. And so that is just a really important factor in delivering a system that is actually uh, not going to break down at any point. And we do have a service designer who's helping us to make sure that we're mapping that end-to-end -end ecosystem. Because a lot of the time, uh, I get this question a lot, why do you have a service designer on a design system team? And I'm like, because we're delivering a service. And we need to understand the front of stage and the back of stage to make sure, make sure that they marry up. And so the technical writing and the content experience side of it is extremely important because it drives adoption. And adoption for a design system is uh, what one of the measures of success that we have. One last question down the front here, in the middle. Yep. Hi, thank you so much for this insightful presentation. It was super helpful. And actually I was gonna ask the same question as Steve around the contribution system. Ah. If Alassian has a contribution system or not uh, in terms of like new components. And I will also like, you have answered that already. I've also want to ask when you were um, when you're starting a design system, there must be like a lot of products already being designed and they're not following the current design system that you're done. So what was the process when you're implementing a new design system to those ones that are already been built? How how was that? Was that mm -hmm. difficult or do you know how to I feel like you were here for that. I wasn't here for that. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that the reason we kind of undertook and kicked off this journey two years ago was because we had a design system that was uh, great for the size and scale that we were at, but it wasn't great for this hyper growth that we talked about in, in, in our talk. And so I, I, we see it as a really, uh, it's, first of all, you can't mandate a design system if it doesn't meet the designers and developers needs, right? So we needed to take time to understand and actually Ava and our other colleagues spent a lot of time to actually interview designers and developers to understand what their core needs were and just apply our design methodologies and our processes to our actual product. And then from that, we identified actually uh, how we needed to evolve the usage, the education, the maintenance, the ongoing uh, evolution of all of our UI foundations. And so through that, we found that uh, doubling down on our color system and getting that adopted at scale across the company has led to a lot of momentum. And so the first thing that you need to, uh, I guess, find is what's the most important valuable thing that matters to your business right now? And then attach your design system success to that particular program or project. You can't boil the ocean, so you need to start small first. And that's why we chose the color system because it would unlock theming and dark mode and light mode and high contrast and low contrast and uh, and also <laughs> we got feedback um, once we'd put it out there to Jira that our dark mode was too dark. <laughs> but because we'd implemented the infrastructure and the tooling and both from engineering and design, once the team had kind of dissected that research and decided on how to resolve it, we were able to roll out the change to the entire company within five days. Mm. And that would not have been possible if we didn't slow down to speed up, so to speak. Mm. And so I think you've got to find that first thing that really is the hook, or as we called it, the Trojan horse, that's going to come in and drive that initial adoption to get that momentum. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>